Um, it's, it's horrible to feel insecure, isn't it? It's horrible to feel insecure. I was thinking about the people of Israel after the atrocities of the Hamas attacks, living their daily lives, feeling insecure in their own streets. Um, or innocent Palestinians facing massive insecurity as well as they come under the most kind of uh, unimaginable barrage of retaliation by Israel to have what, what little security you must feel living in a place like Gaza just ripped away from under you. It's just awful, isn't it? Insecurity is a horrible thing. Um, I remember in the 1990s uh, making a trip to Beirut um, just as there was a 15-year civil war there, just as that was ending. I was on one of the first sort of commercial flights to, to go into the country from the UK. And as my plane landed on the airport, there was no working air traffic control. There was no real working airport. And, and as I battled on my own through the carnage of the airport to try and find a taxi driver I thought I could trust to, to take me to a hotel, I was aware how alone I was as a, as a Westerner in the city. I felt very conspicuous, very insecure. Um, there was a big military presence in the city, and after my taxi to the hotel was commandeered by a, a soldier with a, with a big gun, um, with me still in it, you know, I went to bed that night not feeling very secure. Um, however, come the morning, all of that changed. I, I met with some local business leaders, some government officials, who reassured me I was now completely safe uh, in the city. Crime was almost non-existent. The war was over. People were delightful and friendly, and actually they were. That was my, that was my experience. And by the end of the week, I was drinking coffee in the souks and having a gentle haggle with the market traders, and, and it was great. You see, the, the, the reality was that actually from the moment I landed, I was secure. It's just that I didn't feel it until someone I trusted was able to reassure me. And I think that's what John's been doing in this letter here, isn't it? Assurance is, is the big theme. Chapter 5, verse 13 ought to be indelibly printed in our minds by now. I write these things to you, says John, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So these are people who do believe, but they need reassurance that they really do know the truth, that their faith is genuine and that they therefore have eternal life, that they are eternally secure. And they need that reassurance, of course, because, as we've seen in the letter, that, that reassurance is being undermined, it's being attacked by false teachers who had sort of infiltrated the churches that John is writing to and causing them to doubt the genuineness of their faith. And so John's been showing his readers uh, kind of some signs, if you like, about what real Christians believe and how real Christians live and love. And, and those have all been things on which the false teachers have failed. So they failed the belief test of real Christianity because they deny the deity of Christ. They failed the living test of real Christianity because their living is marked by moral indifference. You know, they believe that sin doesn't matter. You can live how you like. And they've they failed the loving test too. John has evidently been reminding his readers that real Christians love their brothers and sisters, as, as we've seen, because that's not what these false teachers are demonstrating. 
So, so we can see, can't we, why these people pose a threat to the assurance of John's readers. When you've got people in your church who week after week are undermining who Jesus is and his claims, who are telling you that holy living is no big deal and that it's okay to play around with sin and who are seemingly unloving towards others in the church family, well, is it any wonder that people's confidence in their salvation starts to waver? We probably understand how they feel. Don't we? Because actually for for us too, although we may know what we believe, there are pressures on us as Christians too, aren't there? If not from inside the local church, then from inside the wider church, you know, telling us it's okay to hold a, a range of views on the person of Christ or the way of salvation. It's it's fine not to take sin too seriously and to live for yourself a little bit more. And that pressure can eat away at us. Can't it? eats away at our confidence. At the very least, the pressure we experience makes, our, makes us feel perhaps like our faith is weak, like we could fall. And it may also make us wonder whether we're really saved at all. Well, John here is kind of the wise pastor who's writing to reassure us and help us be confident in our faith. And if you just look back to the last verse of chapter 3, look, verse 24, you'll remember that from, from last week. Uh, um, that a sign of a genuine Christian is that God's spirit is at work in their lives. So end of verse 24, by this we know that he, that's God, abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So genuine Christians have God's spirit at work in their lives. And when we see evidence of the spirit at work in our lives, well, it reassures us that our faith is genuine, do you see? And, and, and his point in this morning's passage is to show us kind of two ways, I think, in which we can discern the Spirit's work in us and so be reassured. Two things that we can resolve to do, if you like, through which we can see God's Spirit at work in us and thus assure us that God dwells within us, that we're genuine Christians, that he abides in us. Uh, the first one is in verses 1 to 6, that God's Spirit enables us to believe the truth about Jesus. That's kind of building on the belief test, if you like, of, of chapter 2. And the second one is in verses 7 to 21, that God's Spirit enables us to love one another. And that's building on the, on the love test, if you like, of chapter 3. And he wants them to resolve to do those two things, to believe the truth about Jesus and to love one another because that's how they can discern the work of God's spirit in them and so be confident that they really are God's children, you see? So have a look at verses 1 to 6 with me. God's spirit enables us to believe the truth about Jesus. So he's told them, if you remember, chapter 3, that a sign of being a real Christian is that God's spirit is at work in them. But then he immediately says, look, chapter 4, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, don't be gullible, right? Don't be naive. Don't believe everything you're told, right? Test its origins, Yes, the mark of a true Christian is that God's spirit is at work in you, but not everyone who claims to have God's spirit and claims to speak for for God is from God. And this is because, end of verse 1, there are many false prophets who have gone out into the world. In other words, there are plenty of people who might claim to be speaking from God, but who are actually not. So we have to be on our guard, as it were, against the 
against the spurious. It's, uh, it's easy, friends, isn't it, to, um, to have a fascination with the new and the novel. If you notice that in Christian circles, there's a temptation to just automatically attribute the new or the novel to a work of God's spirit. People get all excited and all enthusiastic about it. They make massive claims about it. This is, this is God's new thing. Everyone needs to get on board with what God's now doing. But of course, often events later show those claims to have been wrong. They were false claims from what John calls here false prophets. People who either were sincere but deluded or people who were deliberately wanting to deceive others for their own personal gain. There's been a stream of these, haven't there, through history, of course. They can often sound very appealing, very convincing. But John is saying here, just don't be naive. Not everyone is who they say they are. Yes, genuine Christians have the Spirit of God at work in them. But remember too, as we saw in chapter 2, that there are false teachers as well. They're inspired by, uh, chapter 2 says, the Spirit of Antichrist. They're around as well. So we mustn't be gullible. We mustn't be naive. So how do we tell then who is genuine and who is not? How do we tell whether we are genuine or not? Well, the first thing to do, he says, is test what people say. Look at, um, look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So how can we tell who is genuine and who is not? Well, it's actually pretty straightforward, says John. Whether they're genuine or not depends on what they make of Jesus. So if you remember from chapter 2, the false teachers of John's day, they were denying the deity of Christ, weren't they? They didn't believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. They they claimed he was simply a a human man upon whom the spirit of Christ descended at his baptism and then left him before his crucifixion. That was what they believed. But John's point here is that such people don't have the spirit of God in them because those people confess Jesus Christ, verse 2. In other words, they they confess that he is who he says he is. He's, He's God in the flesh. No, those who don't confess Christ are not from God, verse 3. So it's not God's spirit who's inspiring them. It's, well, it's the spirit of Antichrist. Because the work of God's spirit is to glorify Jesus. This, this is what Jesus says himself, isn't it? John, uh, John 16, 14, he will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So so the work of the Holy Spirit is characterized by the belief that Jesus is who he claims to be. You know, he's fully man and he's fully God. And so those in whom the Spirit dwells, genuine Christians, are those who have bowed the knee to Jesus. Those who have confessed that he is Lord and and Savior, which of course is what the false teachers here are not doing. They just said he was a kind of inspired man. You know, a man kind of occupied by God for a while. You know, something less than fully God. But it's not the Spirit of God who confesses that, says John. It's the Spirit of Antichrist who confesses that. And of course, we saw in chapter 2, didn't we, that word, Antichrist, it describes somebody who is against Christ. 
or, or someone who seeks to put something else in the place of Christ. And, and so we may well expect the Antichrist to come in the future, John says, uh, someone who embodies, if you like, a, or, or a, 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 a body who embodies all of those characteristics, perhaps to the max. But John's point here is that there are plenty of kind of Antichrist sentiment and teaching around in the world now. And that's the sentiment, that's the teaching behind those who deny who Jesus is. So how do we know who is genuinely one of God's children with his spirit at work in them? And indeed, how do we know whether we are are such people? Well, test what people say. Is Jesus Christ in all his glory as the perfect God-man right at the center of their heart and their belief and their confession? Do they acknowledge him and confess him and stand for him and defend his claims as saviour and as king? In other words, do they confess the Jesus who has revealed himself in the scriptures as king? You know, not some other Jesus that the, the prevailing culture has made up in its image, but the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible, is he confessed as saviour and king, well then that is evidence of the spirit of God at work. Do do you see the point, friends? Test what people say. This is how you know. It's not about whether it feels right. It's about the truth of what people say about Jesus, what they believe. And friends, do you know, I think this, this issue of confessing the exclusive claims of Jesus is every bit as much an issue today as it was back in John's day. The issue in John's day, as we've seen, is that that these Christians were facing was a denial of Jesus' deity. And of course, that's around today as well, isn't it? It's what the Jehovah's Witnesses will try and sell you on on the doorstep, of course. But actually, in another form, just try taking a theology degree at a major university, and you'll find plenty of people who will mock you for upholding the Bible's teaching about Jesus. And if it's not over his claim to be God then it will be some, uh, over some other claim of Jesus instead. His claim to be the only way of salvation, for example, and, and not one of many ways to God, or, or merely one of several religious leaders that we can learn from. And friends, you, you will know that we're living in times now when to proclaim and defend the exclusive claims of Jesus to be God, and so the only way of salvation, well, that can already cause you to be misunderstood, even kind of hated for it, can't it? No matter how gently we, we try and talk about it. You know, if, if, if we want to say in Britain today what the Apostle Peter said in Jerusalem to the rulers and elders and scribes of the city in Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you want to confess that here in Britain, outside the walls of a church building, but it may well cost you. But John's point here is that a a, a sign that we are genuine Christians is that this is the Jesus we talk about. Not, Not a culturally neutered Jesus who only says what the prevailing culture says it can, but the Jesus of the Bible. We either confess him and display the marks of the Spirit's work in us, verse 2, 
or we deny him by either speaking of no Jesus at all or speaking of some kind of PC Jesus whose claims are different and so display the marks of antichrist instead, verse 3. So how do we know who is genuinely one of God's children with his spirit at work in them? And indeed, how do we know that we are such people? Well, test what people say, says John, what they confess about who Jesus is. But also notice in in verses 4 to 6, observe who their followers are. And and this, friends, is because belief and behavior always go together. So believing the truth about Jesus is not just about confessing the truth, but it's about living out the truth as well. And, And this is what these Christians here have done. Look at verse Four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So, so John's saying that these Christians here, they have overcome the false teachers. That, that doesn't mean that the, the false teachers are not a threat to them. Clearly, clearly they are. That's why he's, he's writing the letter. But John's point is that the false teachers have not won the day. They've not won over the true believers to their false teaching, but but they're remaining true to Christ. And why is that, verse 4? Well, it's because the God who is in them by his spirit is greater than all those antichrist spirits who are in the world, who who inspire that false teaching. Do, Do you see the point? Even when the truth about Jesus is under attack, as it is in in every generation, God's people are always on the winning side Because God is greater than the forces of evil who are in the world. But notice what he says, look in verse uh, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, the the false teachers here, they're they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from a a worldly viewpoint. That that is a viewpoint that's that's marked by the the, the sinful, rebellious nature of the world, the world and its rejection of God. So these false teachers are worldly, and that's why the world listens to such people. And of course they do, because worldly teachers tell worldly people what they want to hear, what enables them to live in a worldly way with, with the, you know, the standards, the lifestyle of the world. So, of course, the world will give such people a hearing. Of course it will. But that's not so for the, the true teachers, if you like, the apostolic teachers, because the true teachers, the, the, the apostolic teachers of the New Testament, like John here, are from God, verse 6. So, therefore, those who know God listen to them. And so they show themselves to be people of God. So therefore, those who know God, listen to them. That's the point. If we want to know the difference between the false teacher and the true teacher of Christ, observe who their followers are. Notice who listens to them. Do you see? Friends, John wants us to know that we are genuine Christians. And so he's exhorting us here to believe the truth 
about Jesus because that's how we will know that the Spirit of God is at work in us, not some worldly antichrist spirit. And how do we recognize the work of God's Spirit in others and in ourselves? Well, we test what people say about Jesus, what, the, what they or we confess about who Jesus is, and we confess that he is who he claims to be in the Scriptures. And if we do, that's the sign of God's Spirit at work in us. But we also observe who people follow, who listens to their teaching. Is it teaching that's listened to and affirmed and lived out by a world that's opposed to Christ, because that's what they want to hear? Or is it the apostolic teaching of the Scriptures that is affirmed and confessed and lived out by God's people, you see? Because it's as we listen to, it's as we live out the apostolic teaching of the Scriptures that we show ourselves to be God's people. Friend, can I ask you this morning, is that you? Is your life marked by the truth that you profess to follow? Or is your life more marked by the world that you profess to have overcome? You see, if we claim to listen to and follow the truth about Jesus in the Scriptures, we must live that out in our lives. And that means renouncing worldliness, not embracing it. Friends, we know that God abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And we see evidence that God's Spirit is at work in us as we believe, as we live out the truth about Jesus. So resolve to do so, says John. But there's a second way in, in which we can discern the Spirit's work in us. And, and so be confident, confident that we really are God's children. And it's that God's Spirit enables us to love one another. God's Spirit enables us to love one another. And you can see this in verses 7 to 21. Notice, firstly, the source of love in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So, so John, do you see what he's saying? John is saying the source of love is God himself. Love comes from him, that's verse 7. But more than that, God is love, verse 8. In other words, love is defined in him, right? There's no true love apart from him. And if you really want to see what love is, you must look at God because God is love. He is what love is. His, his very being, his, his very nature is to love. And, and, and so therefore, every one of his thoughts and words and actions is loving. It's marked by love. And friends, you know, that ought to give us amazing confidence, didn't it? Um, when God says things or when God does things that we might find hard to understand or hard to accept, we can know... That everything that God says and does is marked by love because he is love. And, and where is that love most clearly displayed? Well, it's at the cross. 
isn't it? In other words, God is the source of love and the cross is the ultimate demonstration of love. Have a look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see? It's at the cross where God's love for us is displayed most clearly as he sent his son to die for us there. And and, and what is absolutely staggering about this is that we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. In this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, Christ actually died for his enemies. For for those people like, like you and me who had no time for him, who didn't want him in our lives. And even more staggering is that this death for his enemies was undertaken by God's son. Right? His only son. So it was an act of incredibly costly sacrifice, devotion to, to us, wasn't it? And, and what did it achieve? Well, although it was a great demonstration of his love, it was actually even more than that, wasn't it? It was rescue. Such was God's love for us that he sent his son to die in our place. To bear the punishment for our rejection of him so that we can be forgiven. It's that word propitiation again there, isn't there? We saw it in chapter 2. It means a sacrifice that turns away God's righteous anger at our sin and turns it to favor instead. And that's what the cross achieved. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that you and I can be forgiven by God for our rebellion against him. And John says, this is love. Let me ask you, if you're, a, if you're a genuine Christian here this morning, do you ever find yourself doubting if God loves you? Have you ever been tempted to think that you're a nobody? You're too worthless to be loved by anyone, let alone by the God of the universe. Or, or do you ever worry that there's stuff in your past, stuff you've done, such that you could never be forgiven or loved by God? Well, friend, look at the cross. Christ's death on the cross pays for all our sin. If only we'll accept his rescue for ourselves. Have you ever seen a more profound, uh, a deeper display of the fact that he loves you? Let me tell you, you haven't. (laughs) This is love, says John. But, but he's not finished yet, is he? The source of love is God. The demonstration of love is the cross. But here's the challenge of love. And this is really the whole point of what he wants to say in, in, in these verses. Look, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you see? If God, our Father, is love, and he's demonstrated that love to us to such an incredible degree on the cross, sacrificing himself in order to rescue us from from the consequences of our sin, 
Well, we, we who claim to know and follow him, must be people of love too. Otherwise, we prove ourselves to be not his people. Uh, if, if you skip down to verse 19, look, you can, you can see it again. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And friends, the point is clear there really, isn't it? We who claim to know God, well, we must display the family likeness. We can't claim to have the spirit of God working in us if we don't love one another. Uh, if you go back to verse 12, he, he makes the point, uh, uh, takes the point there and look a, a, a stage further. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And, and John's point there is, is to say, you know, where, where else will the non-Christian see God if it's not in a loving Christian community? People can't see God, but they can see his character in Christians, or at least they should be able to. His characteristic of love that is ultimately displayed on the cross of Christ ought to be displayed too in those who follow him. The church should be the shop window onto God's character. And so someone ought to be able to come to a local church and see God's characteristic of love on display among his people. You see? That's what he means in verse 12. By his love is perfected or completed in us. It means God's love achieves its, its fullest effect when it's displayed to the world among, through his people. So what is that going to mean in practice? Well, we saw last week, didn't we? That in the Bible, love is not simply a feeling, but that we have. It's something that leads to action. It's more like the word commitment. Our love for one another will be seen in our commitment to one another. As we care for one another's needs, as we support one another in tough times, as we bear patiently with one another and, and so on. It'll mean committing to being involved in each other's lives. And being committed to the church's gatherings. And of course, that will be costly. It'll be sacrificial to be committed to each other in that way. But that's what love is. Just look at the cross. You'll see. And if we're tempted to think that that it's not really that important, well, John kind of puts a shot across our bows in verse 8, doesn't he? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, if we're not demonstrating love to our brothers and sisters, if being with them and being committed to them is just something to kind of, you know, squeeze in if nothing else is going on, well, we shouldn't be confident about God's, about being God's children because God's children love their brothers and sisters. And this kind of love is self-sacrificial. It's costly. It's committing. Just look at the cross and you'll see. Friends, if we If we claim to be children of God, if we claim to have his spirit at work in us, well, there's a a challenge of love to be heeded here, isn't there? But there's one final thing he wants us to see. That's about the confidence of love. That's what this letter's all about, 
isn't it? He wants us to have confidence that our faith is genuine. He wants us to feel secure. And his point in verses 16 to 18 is that loving one another leads to confidence on the day of judgment. Have a look at the end of verse uh, 16. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Those verses take take a bit of unravelling, don't they? Um, But I think we can get the gist of it easy enough. If we're displaying the family likeness of abiding in love, verse 16, that shows that we live in him and he lives in us. In other words, we can be confident that we're his, we're his children. And that means, verse 17, that as, as love is perfected in us, that's God's love for us in Christ, lived out in our love for one another, so we don't need to fear the day of judgment. We, we don't need to fear that when it comes to the day of judgment and we meet God face to face, that he'll turn us away. And why don't we need to fear? Well, because, verse 18, there is no fear in love. Our love is evidence that we're God's children, so we've got no need to fear God's judgment. Do you see? He doesn't punish his own children. In fact, perfect love casts out fear. If I'm, if I'm a Christian, but I still fear that God might punish me on the day of judgment, well, it's because I'm not yet aware of the fullness of his love. Because knowing that drives out fear. Do you see, friend, John wants you to have confidence about the day of judgment. And that's because it's coming. And and the whole of humanity will have to stand before God. And either eternal life or eternal judgment awaits. And he wants the true child of God to know that he has nothing to fear on that day. Because we're going home to our Father. And he'll receive us with open arms because of Jesus. So don't fear, but rather rejoice in the freedom of being a child of God. And resolve to keep on loving one another. Friends, one of the great things about being a Christian is that you can know that you are a child of God. You can know it. And John in this letter wants you to know it. He wants you to be confident and assured of it. He wants you to feel secure. And one way we can know is because genuine Christians have God's spirit at work in their lives. And we can discern that God's spirit is at work in our lives by the evidence of that work. And here John says that the work of God's spirit enables us to believe the truth about Jesus, to confess it and live it out in our lives. And the work of God's spirit enables us to love one another. So keep doing those things. Keep confessing the truth about Jesus. Keep loving one another. and Living a life of sacrificial love for others that reflects the Father's love for us on the cross. Keep doing those things with the grace that God provides. 
And as a result, we can be absolutely sure that when we stand before Christ on that final day, we will have nothing to fear. He won't turn us away, but he'll say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Shall we pray? Let's pray together. Father, we do uh, pray that you would press home these verses um, into our hearts and into our minds and into our lives, that we would keep confessing Christ, keep living out our confession in our lives, and that we would keep loving one another. Uh, Thank you that you are the source of that love. Thank you that the cross is the demonstration of that love. And so please help us to face the challenge of that love in our love for each other. And all of this we pray that we might know the confidence of that love more and more. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.